Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Lin Vu, author of Governing the Dead, Martyrs, Memorials, and Necrocitizenship in Modern China. Lin is assistant professor at Arizona State University's School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies. We spoke to Lin about how growing up in post-war Vietnam inspired her to learn more about how nations, in this case China, handled the millions of war debt from conflicts in the 20th century, the evolving concept of necrocitizenship, and the most famous of the nationalist regime's martyrs for the nation. Hello, Lynn. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Um, Thank you, Jonathan. My pleasure. Our pleasure. And congratulations on your new book, Governing the Dead, Martyrs, Memorials, and Necrocitizenship in Modern China. Tell us how you got interested in this topic and the backstory of this book. Um, so I have always interested in wars and conflicts. Uh, part of it is because I was born in Vietnam. Um, even though I was born a decade after the Vietnam War ended, the war was pretty much there. My parents and grandparents don't really talk about it so much, but it's there and it's sort of haunting me forever. Um, So when I began to study Chinese history in college, I became curious about how wars affected people in China. And I did my PhD coursework and went into field work hoping to find out more about, you know, what happened to people during the war, um, multiple wars during the 20th century. So to narrow down my focus as, you know, doing uh, archival research, I thought that I would be able to find documents about how the government and the people handled uh, the corpses, the millions of the war dead. Um, How can they deal with this logistical issue, which is a a huge one if you think about it. Um, There there were a lot of dead bodies everywhere, as I imagine, but I couldn't find any. um, I found some stuff about dead bodies and burials uh, of Chinese soldiers in Burma and uh, India during the Burma campaign of the 1940s. But um, that's about it. So I pivoted a bit to work on, you know, the idea that how the state and the people dealt with um, loss and suffering um, and others, you know, sort of how, how do they come back together after the war? So um, that became uh, the topic of my book. Interesting. Now, I read in the acknowledgments that uh, part of your interest was spurred by visiting catacombs in Rome. Is that correct? Yes, uh, so even though I studied Chinese history in college, when I had the opportunity to uh, study abroad, I chose um, Rome. And uh, my uh, professor then, um, his name is um, blinking now. I only remember his last name, Paxton. Uh, He's a medieval historian. um, And he took us to the catacomb and I was just struck about the idea of, you know, how the dead sort of live among us, among the living, um, and how they are not forgotten, how they are, you know, still there. Um, so yes, I became very deeply interested in, in the dead, and I actually wrote articles about uh, car accidents and suicides, I'm sort of, you know, this is like the theme for my intellectual uh, endeavor somehow. Um, hopefully, I will pivot to something more uplifting in the future, but I think there's so much to be done about um, dead um, and the dead um, and, you know, the role that they play in our lives as the living. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it's a depressing topic. I mean, I think it's, it's part of life. And uh, there, you know, it's something that people, at least in the West, try to avoid thinking about. And I think we need to think more about the impact of the dead on the living. Now, your focus specifically is on China, modern China. And there's been a lot of death in over the past 100, 150 years, particularly in the first half of the 20th century. The whole world was on fire, really. Um, but for the Chinese, 20 to 30 million Chinese military and civilian died and lost their lives in the first half of 20th century. How, how did the nationalist regime in China assume the responsibility for caring for the dead and also in doing so create a powerful nation state? Uh, yes, so that's one of my main arguments for the book is that the nationalist, um, you know, the regime, uh, they were quite confident in creating the foundation for a strong nation state, even though they lost the Chinese Civil War and you know now they kind of shrink to fit into the island of Taiwan. Uh, actually, they also lost um, a lot of uh, power in Taiwan as well. But in a way, we sort of have to give them some credits. Um, as early as you know the 1910s and the 1920s, members of the Revolutionary Alliance. So this is the you know, sort of the former um, identity of the Nationalist Party. And also the Nationalist Party too, during the you know, early 1920s, they started to promote the idea that sacrificing one's life for the nation and the, polit and the political party was a good death. Um, it's something that is actually desire. And then when the Nationalist regime was formed in the mid 1920s, they started to create institutions to commemorate those martyrs who died for the Chinese Republic. And then they also compensated the families of those martyrs. And uh, the nationalist government also did a bunch of you know, firsts. They first built a military cemetery for fallen soldiers in Nanjing. They also mandated county governments to build shrines for martyrs. Then they also made um, the county governments to organize commemorative events. So as you can imagine, all these policies uh, reinforced a very uh, strong notion of national martyrdom and national belonging. Uh, you attended those ceremonies, you feel like you are connected to the people that sacrifice their lives and you feel connected to the community. Uh, in, a, in a way, those propaganda, those policies worked in creating, you know, the, the national community. Um, and also, you know, not just those intangible notion of the nation, but the institutions that they built, um, the, the institutions also provided um, tangible benefits. So families uh, of those who were honored as martyrs, um, they could receive stipends and then their children could attend school for free. So, you know, there's a lot of incentives for people to, um, you know, uh, join the nationalist cause and, you know, became more willing to die for the nation or become willing to think of the death of someone as, you know, for the nation, even though in many cases, um, these could be um, considered victims. They, they probably did not have this very nationalistic, very patriotic notions when they died, but um, they, the families of those people were inclined to think that these deaths are in fact for the nation. Interesting. Tell us, the, you know, in the, in the subtitle, you have necro citizenship. Could you explain a little bit more of this concept? Uh, yes. Uh, 
So I think, um, and to be honest, you know, this is one of the concepts that I'm still working through. Uh, and I think other authors, um, you know, also work on it as well. But for me, in my research, I think there are two uh, meanings to Nicko citizenship. One is the idea that people that died way before the nation was founded, Think, um, think about there were people that died, revolutionaries that died um, in the late Qing um, dynasty and early Republican period. So, you know, late 19th century and early 1910s. Um, these people died before the national, nationalist regime um, was established. But then when the, you know, the, the regime was built, um, the nationalists would take all these people that died during this period, you know, prior to their establishment and say, these are the ancestors of our nation. So necrocitizenships in a way means that those uh, dead that was sort of scooped up um, from different periods of history and now they become incorporated uh, into the nation. They are the necrocitizens of the nation. And the second meaning of necrocitizenship uh, is a little bit darker and more sinister, I guess, uh, is the idea that you can only gain citizenship, you can only become part of a nation upon your death. So a lot of these people and, you know, a lot of the soldiers and many more of the civilians, they, they were not known to the state. The state did not know they exist. But once they died during the war, especially the war of the war of resistance, um, World War II, you know, the war that they, uh, the Chinese fought against um, the Japanese army. Uh, once they died, they became incorporated into the nation state. They are celebrated as martyrs, as heroes, as part of the nation. So in a way, they only gained uh, citizenship upon their death. So it's a little bit of um, a morbid idea that, you know, you are only part of the nation. You only gain citizenship by dying. Um, that's a tough, tough way, yeah, tough way to become a citizen. <laughs> uh, but you know, in the case of America too, you know, uh, some soldiers, uh, you know, green card holders, they could become citizens after they die during the war, and you know, That's they true. gain citizenship posthumously. So there's a little bit um, something that is sinister about the about the nation mm-hmm. uh, in the state. It's, yeah. And you mentioned you you had mentioned parallels with the American Civil War and European states, European countries after World War One, that a lot of them erected monuments to the dead, war memorials. And so there was this Western mode of war commemoration. And you're looking at the, the Eastern, the Chinese approach. And I was fascinated by these loyal martyr shrines. Tell us how the, they were different than the traditional Western approach to war commemoration. One of the main um, difference is that uh, the national government and you know the central government did not build a lot of those, but they sort of just mandated county governments to do so. And uh, as you think about a you know the bureaucracy, the county governments would just pick some sort of an empty space in an existing temple, and they say this would be the space for the martyrs uh, now, uh, and that would save us a lot of you know, money, a lot of cost uh, associated with building a whole new shrine, a whole new memorial. So um, that's what happened during, uh, you know, the nationalists who in uh, mainland China. So a lot of those temples that became the loyal martyr shrines were already temples. Um, So 
in the same space, um, as I explained in the book as well, sometimes, you know, heroes from the Han Dynasty, for example, or the Song Dynasty, they would be honored in the same space as Republican martyrs. So there's a lot of um, sort of, um, you know, um, mixing and uh, mixed match. Uh, as you can imagine, which is really counter to what the nationalist agenda would be, right? They would want to commemorate only the people that die for the nation and the political party. But in in, in a way, those shrines uh, have to conform to the local conditions and they sort of become um, a place for, you know, all the martyrs, all the heroes, all the local uh, prominence that died. Um, so, um, and then because of, you know, the idea that they only appropriated uh, temples that already existed. So when the communists took over, all the shrines disappear overnight. Well, I would not say overnight, but they would sort of revert, uh, revert it back to being um, the shrines to you know, the Han Dynasty heroes and the Song Dynasty heroes and the trace of the Republican heroes um, disappeared. Um, so we couldn't see a lot of those today. There are there are a few of them that um, are still standing, um, but you you no longer, you no longer see those. Uh, so that's another difference too. That you know, if you visit um, Europe or you know America, um, the memorials are probably still there. They are constructed more um, um, sort of prominently, and um, they did not suffer the same fate uh, as the Chinese Laurel Martyrs Shrine. That's fascinating. Tell us more about the actual uh, ceremonies, which they called comforting the loyal spirit. Yes, so I think it's very fascinating. And I think I have uh, long sections in the book describing those ceremony. Uh, in the beginning, they would follow um, those sort of ancestral worship, uh, ancestor worship, um, the ceremonies for those. So they would offer incense, offer all these uh, meats that are prepared ritually, or these fruits. And um, all these offerings, food, uh, most of the time, because, you know, the Chinese ghosts are hungry. Uh, the, you have to feed the ghost in China and a lot of other Asian societies. Um, so all these foods um, would be put in ritual, you know, bowls and plates and everything like that. And then later on, of course, uh, you have a lot more martyrs, you have more ceremonies to conduct, and also you face the difficulty of wartime, so you simplified it, and uh, basically people got good um, gather, um, and they would um, you know bow three times to the martyrs' portraits and uh, some elegies, some poems, um, some lectures would be read to those martyrs. So they became a more standardized and I guess politicized. But in a way, it's still, um, you know, those ceremonies still played a very important role in creating a community, um, you know, uh, even though the, it's centered around the dead, but it's unified the living to a large extent. And just out of curiosity, I know this is beyond the scope of your book, but then, you know, the communist revolution occurs and a lot of these traditions that are more spiritual in nature didn't jive with the new scientific man that they were proposing. So how did some of these traditions, did they just stop some of these traditions? So I haven't done a lot of research um, about the communist uh, era yet, but I what I found is that it's very gradual. It's not like 
uh, they took over and they forced people to abandon all this. Actually, the communists also have their, you know, very similar rituals uh, up until the 1950s before they carry out, you know, the great proletarian cultural revolution. A lot of the ceremonies that were invented by the nationalists to worship, you know, their martyrs were adopted by the communists as well. Um, there are some ceremonies and there are um, the, what, uh, what is called the public sacrifice, which is, you know, a memorial, but it's called sacrifice because you make sacrificial offerings to the dead. Um, a lot of these activities were carrying out uh, for prominent Chinese politicians as well. Even in Beijing, there's a cemetery for uh, the cadre. It's called the Eight Treasures Mountain um, Cemetery. And uh, from what I read uh, from the newspapers um, in the 50s, a lot of the ceremonies um, uh, resembled what the nationalists did um, you know, during the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, but of course, the biggest change would happen during the Cultural Revolution, and a lot of those rituals would be abolished and condemned. Um, but, you know, a lot of times things sort of cycle back, I guess, uh, sure. and the idea of organizing a public sacrifice and make offerings to the dead. I mean, you know, they're still doing it these to these days, um, maybe not at the you know, top Politburo level, but the people still carrying out the same ceremonies. That makes sense. It's not state sanctioned necessarily, but there's the local uh, municipalities are doing it still. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So during Especially the, the families. Yeah. The families. Yes. So, you know, like a Chinese politicians, maybe the state organizes a state funeral that is more, you know, um, I guess, scientifically guided, uh, that's not the right word, but you know what I mean. But the mm -hmm. families would carry out all this, you know, tomb sweeping festivals and all this burning incense and burning paper goods and all these things. So there's a, a sort of a separate, the public sphere and then the private sphere where people could um, exhibit more of the traditional ways of, you know, mourning the dead. That makes sense, that makes sense. Um, during this time, who were some of the most famous of the martyrs for the nation? Uh, yes, yeah, so the most famous one would be uh, Lin Juanin, and I only briefly mentioned him in the book because he's, I think he's too popular. Um, and he, he died in 1911 in a very small uprising in Guangzhou in southern China. Uh, but he was not that famous for what he did uh, in the revolution, in the uprising. What he was famous for is actually because he wrote a very long loving letter to his wife. Uh, and I think one of uh, my friends in Taiwan told me that the letter that Lin Chiu-min wrote to his wife was taught in Taiwan in school, you know, to school children for a long time. I couldn't verify that, but I could imagine that that is the case. Um, and then um, he also wrote a very short one a farewell letter to his father he just said you know i'm so sorry it was unfilial um, but the letter to his wife made him very famous because as you can imagine of course you can always talk about those martyrs you know die for the nation die for the state they die so heroically you know in front of the enemy and all these things um, but then eventually um in order to you know create something that resonates with people you want the backstory you want those martyrs to be three-dimensional. Um, so a lot of times the stories, and I mentioned earlier in this interview that, you know, the nationalists already create this idea of dying from the nation is the 
to good this. Um, but they all, but you know, keep in mind the nationalist uh, regime and the the nationalist party members and you know the the leaderships. They also create all these stories or they promote those stories as well. The idea that you know someone died for for the nation, but before he did that, he was a filial son. He had this you know marital bliss with his wife, and even though you know dying for the nation means he could no longer take care of his parents and his family, but of course he would leave um, an heir, you know, a male son behind to continue his lineage. So, um, so this is really the theme for, you know, the martyrs of the nation actually. And um, you, you can kind of think about how, you know, those three-dimensional, you know, characters would be more uh, would be a better candidate to motivate people, right? Um, so you read about those people and you can really think that, oh, they had a really good life. And even, you know, posthumously, they were cared for by their heirs and they were not in filial at all. So that's another thing with, you know, the whole idea of constructing the notion of martyrdom is that you need to reconcile or not you, uh, but the nationalist, uh, regime. Um, it has reconciled the Confucian idea of someone who, you know, lived a long life taking care of his parents, taking care of his families and raising his children uh, with someone that would die or would be willing to die for the nation. So those stories uh, of, the, the, uh, of the martyrs have to cater to that um, sensibility. Right. So they have to make sure that the martyr was not only, you know, willing to die, but he was also very handsome. He had a great life and um, his lineage uh, is maintained. And I actually had a really long, I have a very long story about Cheng Kenshin in, in the book. I included his whole biography because I really want people to see what was put out there for the people and how those stories uh, motivated the living. So, you know, in Cheng Kunxin, he was very handsome. He, he, he could ride horses and shoot guns, but then he can also, you know, recite poetries. Uh, and then when, you know, he engaged in the suicide missions, he had this long talk about, you know, how, um, how that would be okay um, in the Confucian society, in the Confucian, you know, how he did not violate the Confucian principle. And um, so the stories are very wholesome. So, you know, before, I guess, before Netflix or before all the, the movies about heroes, those stories, those stories of martyrs that are promoted by the state, but in a way they became very popular. they almost became like a popular fiction for people. You can see that, you know, the stories uh, motivate people because it caters to a lot of um, the, the, the human needs, the, you know, the idea that they want to live a fulfilled life. Uh, and death was just, you know, part of the ideal life that was lived. Um, so I think that is that is important. Uh, and I just want to add one thing that, you know, why it's so important to for the martyrs to, you know, um, to live a well-lived life and then have uh, an heir to take care of him. It's because um, in the in the Chinese society, there's no, you know, other worldly rewards for the dead. And this is something that is different from, let's say, you know, American and European 
societies, some of those, um, is that there's no God to embrace those martyrs into, you know, his arms. So um, it is very important for the stories of the martyrs that once they die, their wives stay chased, uh, their parents are taken care of either by the family or the state, and their son went to school and carrying out, you know, the ambitions of the dead, you know, father martyr. Um, so that is very important. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Well, thank you so much for sharing these stories and, and making this history come alive. It's a fascinating look, as, as you said, how the dead were used as a way of creating a whole new system of government, the a bureaucracy that you said constructed military cemeteries. There were hundreds of local martyr shrines. They collected biographical data on the dead, and they collectively mourned millions of fallen soldiers and civilians, as well as distributed millions of yuan to tens of thousands of widows and orphans. So it was a huge undertaking. And as uh, you also eloquently said, they also presented the martyrs as heroes and presented them as a way of bringing cohesion to the state. So all of this is detailed in much more elaborate ways uh, with in-depth research in your new book, Governing the Dead, Martyrs, Memorials, and Necro-Citizenship in Modern China. Thank you so much, Lynn, for joining us. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for taking time with me. That was Lin Vu, author of Governing the Dead, Martyrs, Memorials, and Necro-Citizenship in Modern China. If you'd like to purchase her new book with a 30% discount, visit our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>